It's always wonderful to be together, isn't it, and uh, worship God uh, as we uh, have enjoyed that this morning, the time around uh, communion table, time singing praises uh, to our wonderful Saviour. If you're visiting with us, we're going through the Gospel of John. It's my privilege this morning to, to open up uh, John chapter 7. That's where we will be today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to John 7. If you don't have one of these little wee, uh, Gospel of John journals, I encourage you to grab one. There's some down the front here. Uh, very helpful as you work through the Gospel of John. You can make notes on one page and, and just um, immerse yourself in the text. It's a wonderful thing to do. If um, I was to ask you what characterises our culture, not our Christian culture, just our, our, our general culture within this world, what would be, what would be some of the words that uh, you would use to try and describe our culture? So thinking about that, it's, I've been thinking about that over this week and I think one of the words that would describe our culture in many ways is dissatisfied. I think we're a a dissatisfied culture. We're dissatisfied with our material well-being. If we work in a particular company or business, we may be dissatisfied with the company we work for. We may be dissatisfied with our boss. And I think we have elements of this. We see total dissatisfaction in our culture between husband and wife because of the divorce rate, because of all those sorts of things. You may be dissatisfied with the government. You know, the healthcare system doesn't give us enough or our education system doesn't provide a proper education. And, you know, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? goes on and on. We, the culture tends to be a culture of dissatisfaction. I think that's because the culture consistently wants more and more. Our culture consistently wants more and more. Yeah, just imagine the horrors of this. You go to your favorite cafeteria, right? Get your favorite coffee, and there's no free Wi-Fi. It's just tragic. Dissatisfaction abounds. You know, Mick Jagger got it right, I think, many years ago. I can't get no satisfaction. And have you noticed how the marketers in the world continually <laughs> provide slogans? Slogans like this, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. And by the way, if you're not happy, you can get your money back. Can you see the irony in that? The marketers understand you're not going to have 100% satisfaction, but they keep on putting it out there and saying, well, we can provide that. And if you really don't like it, we'll give you your money back after, inside 14 days, of course. Sure, we can enjoy satisfaction for a moment. I don't disagree with that. Last night we had a family time together. We had a wonderful spring lamb roast. You know, with those really beautiful crispy potatoes, a beautiful kumara, 
fresh peas. Oh, cauliflower cheese. Who likes cauliflower cheese? Oh, outstanding, hey? And sure, satisfaction was for a moment because today, after this, you know, the lunch today, I'll probably go home and grab some more lamb. I need to be more satisfied. Now, satisfaction, satisfaction, satisfaction. Oh gosh, I can't even say it. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that lamb. <laughs> you know, but you are satisfied for a while. We can we can experience some form of satisfaction when we um, get our final degree. There's a little bit of Utopia involved with that. You've uh, managed to complete a task. But the question really is, what does truly satisfy? In the life and the heart of soul and the soul of men and women, what truly satisfies? And do you experience true satisfaction? And as we look at John 7 this morning, I think we see the answer. Blazoned across the truth that Jesus says. So if you could turn with me to John chapter 7. We're going to continue the dialogue we started last week. Uh, Here we have Jesus at the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about that. He had spoken with his earthly brothers. His earthly brothers were trying to to make a public display of Jesus. And and he said, no, I'm not going up. My hour has not yet come. He said, God is the one who will determine the hour that my hour is or the hour that I will be crucified. Not you as my earthly brothers. It is God's timing. But Jesus privately goes up to the feast. And he clearly states on many occasions in the start of John chapter 7 that his time is not yet. His time is not yet fully come, verse 5 and verse 8. And then towards the middle of the chapter in verse 30 when, when the, the crowd was seeking to arrest Jesus because they didn't, didn't like what he was saying, he said, that's not happening. No hand was laid on him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. You see, the the issue here is, as we learned last week, whenever Jesus uh, was teaching, opinion was divided over who he was. Is he the Christ? Uh, Well, here they, they accused him in the first part of the chapter of actually having a demon. They accused him of, you're only speaking on your own authority. There's no authority in, in what you say. But Jesus defends himself like any good trial lawyer would. He defends himself and he he says, actually, my authority to speak comes from God. Later on, he'll go to say in John, because the Father and I are one. The start of John we read, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's where Jesus' authority consistently comes from, the fact that he is the divine son of God. So he explains that to these people. You know, he had direct access to God, an access that was not like Moses and an access that was not like the the current or past rabbis. 
And then Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. And his argument as he, he defends himself, uh, as he really is wanting to stop these, these folks from wanting to kill him here on the spot. He argues from a lesser to greater. He establishes a point of law, if you like, and he says, hey, I'm going to use circumcision as a, an example. You circumcise on the Sabbath day, don't you? Yes, no matter what, the eighth day after the child is born, you, you circumcise on that day? Yes, well, therefore, isn't that the, the precedent that's been set? And that you're having a go at me because I make the whole body whole on the Sabbath. So the other two things he does. He states time and time again that his time is not determined by his mother as in back in John 2 at the the wedding feast or or by his brothers here in John chapter 7. And his hour is definitely not determined by the hysteria of the mob. But his time is always in God's hands. Just like you and I. Our time is in God's hands. And so that's where we're up to in this dialogue. And the the dialogue continues in in verse 32. So let's read that together. And we'll break it up into four pieces this morning as we conclude this chapter. So let's read together verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. What things were they muttering? They were muttering the things which are noted in the earlier chapters that, well, maybe he's the Christ, or maybe actually some have believed because they saw the signs. Some wanted to arrest him. They, they heard all this murmuring. The Pharisees heard this. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests. And the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to, to him who sent me. You will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, what does this man intend to do that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. See, the Pharisees have heard the murmurings. Remember, these guys hate Jesus. They want Jesus dead. They started back in, in John 5 when, when they had a major confrontation. So they heard this murmuring, so what do they do? They enlisted the temple police to go and arrest Jesus. And uh, so that's where we have in our text, it says, sent officers to arrest him. Same thing, temple police. They had, a, they had at their, their disposal, the Pharisees and Sadducees, a, a whole series of, of, I guess, law, law people uh, that could uh, act on their behalf inside the temple, uh, temple courtyards. And they actually did that beyond the temple courtyard. They would act in, in, in any part of Jerusalem. But as we see from this text, they are, they are sent. But Jesus continues to speak to the crowd. They're looking to arrest him. But we know, as we've said, his time is not yet. So their plan's sort of uh, there for doom, really, isn't it? It's not going to happen. 
Because the rest is not going to occur here. It's going to occur in six months' time at the, at the next Passover. So Jesus, with this over his, his head, just continues to talk to the crowd. And he continues the dialogue with the crowd. And he says, um, I'm not going to be with you for much longer. And they don't really understand this. And he says, I'm going to the one who sent me. And this has been a constant refrain. Because I'm from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to the one who sent me. And, and by the way, you can't follow. And the crowd, as you can see, are perplexed by this. Because Jesus says, where I am, you cannot come. And they get perplexed. They say, well, what do you mean we can't come? You're before us. Are you going out into Greece? Are you going to some other part of the country? They don't understand the concept of Jesus' origin. They don't understand the fact that he is the son of God. And he's going to go back to God. They think he's just the son of Joseph and Mary. Just a man. And they're confused about uh, about Jesus. But the worst thing is their hearts are slowly hardening towards the truth of who he is. Their hearts are hardening. Let's now read verse 37 to 39. Remember, we are in the middle of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, or known as the Feast of Ingathering. How long did that feast go for? Seven days. So, this was the middle of the feast when Jesus made these statements, and now we come to on the last day, verse 37. Of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is a, a reasonably significant time in, in the feast. And you know, the, John tells us it was the last day of the feast. And it was considered the great day. Remember, as we spoke last week, we, we talked about this entire story in chapters 7 and 8 is, is around the Feast of Booze and around the Feast of Tabernacles. It's during this pilgrimage feast, the last pilgrimage feast of, of the Israeli calendar each year. And uh, at the start of this feast, and it's something I didn't uh, share with you last week, at the start of the seven-day feast, um, water would be brought in in a golden vessel from the pool of Siloam to the temple where the priest poured it out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering as the temple choir, like our little choir here, that was great this morning, wasn't it? The temple choir would sing. Uh, from Isaiah 12 verse 3 with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation Isaiah 12 verse 3 so this is how each day the feast would start they would, they would be singing this with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and they'd also sing the Halal Psalms what are the Halal Psalms? Psalm 113 to 118 you realise that the Psalms are just the um, Jewish songbook don't you? 
That's all the Psalms are. They're a Jewish songbook. And uh, these are the songs they sing in the synagogue today, and they used to sing many years ago. So they would have this block of Psalms, 113 to 118, called Halal Psalms. And Halal means praise, songs of praise. It's not some sacrificial system for lamb. And they would be singing this and, and uh, fulfilling the requirements of the feast. And according to Jewish tradition, this is not actually in the Old Testament, but it's in all the historical documents that we have from rabbis. According to Jewish tradition, on the last day of the feast was marked by a special water-pouring rite and light ceremony. And then that was followed by uh, just dismantling of the booze and the tabernacles they were in, and it was a great time of joy and singing. So when Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, stands up and cries out, there, there is some tremendous impact on the pilgrims there. Just when these events of the festival are, and the imagery of water pouring, um, which symbolize God's past blessing, through providing water in the desert and, and water for the harvest of the crops. Um, and also, this whole water thing symbolizes future blessing. And we'll get to that in Zechariah 14. Because at the start of the feast, again, they would read from Zechariah 14. So they would have a, a past view of what the feast meant. They'd have a present view and they'd have a future view. And uh, so let's just go back to Zechariah 14 and, and see what, what, what occurs, what they read. They, they particularly read Zechariah 14, verse 16 through to 19. If you don't know where Zechariah is, go to the Matthew and turn back to. So Zechariah 14, verse 16. And this... Chapter, chapter 14, seems to have a strong future uh, prophecy about it. It talks about the coming day of the Lord. It talks about a great battle that will occur. It talks about Jesus stepping down and, and putting his feet on the Mount of Olives and it's splitting from east to west. And then all the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship. It's really interesting and, uh, because here in verse uh, 16 it says this, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booze. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then... Then on them there shall be no rain, there shall be the plague which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of the booze. This shall be a punishment to Egypt and a punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. So this is read at the start of the feast, so they are looking for future blessing from, from this particular feast. And all this is to say that when Jesus stands up on the last day and says, if anyone thirsts, there is deep symbolic significance 
in his statement. Deep symbolic significance. You see, these people were looking for, for a day that would come where once again Jerusalem would, would be the center and the temple would be there and the rivers would be flowing from that place where they would celebrate the Feast of Booths. What do we make of this? Is this a, a, some future event? Or is this something that has now been fulfilled in Christ? There are views on this. And unfortunately, when we have views on this, that tends to split people, split churches, which is an absolute disaster. Because it comes down to the interpretation of prophecy. It comes down to, to what you believe about Scripture and what you believe about God's promises to a nation, Israel, and what you believe about God's promises to the church. And I believe in here, this particular Zechariah 14 is talking about the millennial reign of Christ, where all nations will come to him and worship, where rivers of living water will flow from Jerusalem because Christ the King is seated there. It's the joy, if you like, of ingathering. We talk about this being the feast of ingathering, it's the joy of all nations coming and worshipping the Lord. It's really interesting, I believe, here also the millennial feast is the feast of tabernacles, is the feast of tabernacles because then God will be tabernacling with his people more fully than ever before in our long history. It's a bit of an aside, but let's think about that as we go forward into this text because what does Jesus cry out? This is a beautiful thing. He cries out. Now, this is just not a mild cry, by the way. This is a proclamation. We talked about this last week. This is a major proclamation. He's already done a major proclamation back in, in verse 28. And here's a word that's used to say he's heralding forth. He's making a loud proclamation with deep emotion. He cries out for all to hear. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Two commands, come to me and drink. If you want future blessing from God, you've got to come to me and drink. If you want future understanding of who I am and how salvation is secured, you come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A tremendous statement. A tremendous statement. And you know what? As I was studying through this, something else I came across which I never knew about this particular feast. And I think this is significant in terms of what's going on here, in terms of Jesus' proclamation. If I asked you who should attend this feast, who would you say should attend this feast? Currently, as Jesus is there, who should attend the feast? I'm glad you asked the question. This is a very good question. 
So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Go with Deuteronomy chapter 16. And you're reading there who can attend the Feast of Booths. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Gathering, you can call it what you like. Here is what Deuteronomy says. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days uh, when you've gathered in the produce from the threshing floor and your wine press. Remember, it's a, it's a festival about what God has provided harvest-wise. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter. Okay, I've got that. You, your son and your daughter. Your male servant and your female servant. Okay, got that. The Levite, got them, they're pretty special folks. The sojourner. What's a sojourner? We'll come back to that. The fatherless and the widow who are with you in your towns. I never knew this. I never knew that a sojourner could attend the feast. That astounded me. I don't know why I didn't know that. Perhaps I just don't read my Bible enough. It's there. I play in English or Hebrew. So what is a sojourner? The sojourner is distinguished from the foreigner in that he is settled on the land for some time and is recognized as having a special status. Very much like a New Zealander in Australia. Yeah, we've settled in the land. We have a special status. <laughs> One of our prime ministers once said, very famously, when he was asked about all the people jumping over the ditch, Oh, I hope that sounded right. Uh, jumping over the Tasman Sea. Uh, he said, oh, I'm okay with all that uh, immigration going on because it's increasing the IQ of both countries. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but these sojourners are, are individuals. They're not ethnic Jewish people, but they're seeking refuge in this, in this land of Israel for political or economic reasons. And, uh, you know, for instance, we've got examples in the Old Testament. Abraham was like that, and Moses was in Midian for some time, and Elimelech and his family were in Moab, if you read the start of Ruth. They were sojourners in a, in a different land. You know, a sojourner never possessed any part of the land. Mind you, neither did an Israelite, because the land was owned by God. But they were generally in service of an Israelite who is his master and protector. They were usually poor, but as a resident, they enjoyed the rights of assistance, protection, and religious participation. They had rights to go in the field and, and glean from the field. And um, they could also definitely participate in the tithe. Okay? And on the Sabbath year. And they had access to the cities of refuge. Um, they could participate in all religious feasts, but there was only one condition. You had to be circumcised. So that was the condition. But, you know, this is tremendous, is it not? You've got Jesus sitting here at the Feast of Booze. He's crying out, if anyone thirsts. He's got Jewish folks there. He's got sojourners there listening to this cry to the world. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. This is not the first time we've come across this concept in this gospel. We come across this concept when Jesus was with the Samaritan woman at, at the well and he said, I will give you living water. 
We also came across this concept with the crowd at the feeding miracle and the, and the whole bread of life discourse a couple of weeks ago, right? What was the, the major focus of the bread of life discourse? When Jesus stated, I am the living bread, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall what? Never thirst. See, this is the heart of satisfaction. Not thirsting. Because your eternal destiny is secure. Because you believe in the promises of God. And he grants his spirit within you to comfort, to guide, and to refine. And to satisfy the thirsting of your soul. You see, satisfaction and eternal life are pictured to us by Jesus with this water metaphor, with this picture about water. You see, at this feast, each year they would, they would, they would continue to do the same thing on the last day, right? They would have the water pouring right, they'd have the light ceremony. But that thing would pass into memory year after year, and they'd come back and do the same thing. But Jesus is now standing there. And he's claiming to provide living water and the light of the world continuously. Continuously. He does this with great emotion and with great proclamation. It's really interesting when you break the statement down, if anyone thirsts. I love, I love it when sometimes you go back to the original language and you get a real nugget. Because this is one of those statements. When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, there's a statement we, we know is what we call a third-class conditional clause. Now, what does that mean? Simply this. When the statement is made, if anyone thirsts, Jesus is inferring, I know that you all thirst. I know that you all thirst. So come to me and drink. So I will give you living water. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He doesn't actually quote from the Old Testament. He, he alludes to a portion of the Old Testament. Not an illusion as, in such a, as a magician does but an illusion that he's alluding to. Okay, you know how we do it. We do this sometimes, okay? You have it into a conversation and, and all of a sudden you, you want to you wanna quote something from Scripture to, to validate your conversation. Because you've been so slack in your memory of Scripture, you can't really remember. So you, you, you sort of grab um, thoughts about Scripture. That's sort of an illusion, right? You're alluding to the truth of Scripture, not really quite knowing where it is. And... This is the same here when he says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It could be one or two uh, allusions. It could be either Isaiah 44 verse 3 or Isaiah 58 verse 11. Isaiah 44 verse 3 says this, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. 
God is, is, is announcing what he will do in future blessing of, of his people. Isaiah 58, 11 says this, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy you, your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Isn't that beautiful verses? But the promised blessings of God. So Jesus could have been, there's a whole host that he could have been alluding to. I think they're the two best here. Because in the end, he's saying, I will satisfy your soul. And from your soul will will flow rivers of living water. (coughs) See, there's two parts to to what Jesus is is telling us here. There's two two things that that are happening. He is, he's talking about the fact that you need to believe in him. Whoever believes in me, that's the state of fact, will have this experience of rivers of living water flowing out of the heart. And then he, he, gives a, he talks about what that actually is. He said, rivers of living water flowing out of the heart is the Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit hasn't arrived yet. Doesn't arrive till Pentecost. Doesn't arrive till 50 days after his crucifixion. Doesn't arrive to the, until um, Jesus has ascended and the promised Holy Spirit comes down. And from that point in time, all believers have the Spirit of God within them when they believe in Christ. The Old Testament is different, right? The Holy Spirit came upon people for a time, for a season, did not indwell people. So what we have here is a, just a beautiful statement. And this offer that Jesus made back here at the Feast of Booze, six months before he's crucified, is the same offer he makes to you and I today. The same offer. If anyone thirsts, and I know you all do, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what satisfies. Are you thirsty today? Do you understand that belief in Christ is the only way of salvation? It is the only way. Church attendance is not a way. Doing good works is not a way. Belief in Christ is the only way. He is the only one who satisfies. The second promise here is for those who who have faith and trust in Christ, who are believers, we have this wonderful promise that the Spirit indwells us. Incredible promise that the Spirit indwells us. He comes as our comforter. He, he comes as our refiner. He comes as our counselor. Just an incredible thing when you think about the Spirit of God dwells within us who believe. And out of us flows rivers of living water from the heart. And I guess my question there is when I think about that is, do you have rivers of living water flowing out of your heart if you're following Christ, or do you just have a trickle? Have you got a couple of hardened arteries 
couple of blockages, which are stopping the power of the Spirit of God in your walk with Him. Are you a grace abuser? Are you a grace faker? What stops you from having rivers of living water flowing in your experience with God? What stops you from experiencing rivers of living water on a daily basis? Because that's the promise. That's the promise. What's turning your flow of rivers of living water to a trickle? Could be a number of things, couldn't it not? It could be the weight of anxiety upon our lives as we get squeezed by our circumstances and we fail to look to God. That happens. We allow our circumstances to dictate our responses as opposed to the truths of who you are in Christ. If you suffer from anxiety and depression, it's all about wrong thinking in many cases. And the wrong thinking starts right at the start because your thinking's not in God's word. Your thinking isn't being shaped by the illuminating power of the Spirit of God as we open up God's word. Second Peter tells us that he, he has given us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the power of his spirit in our lives. It may be some besetting sin that is stopping the, the, the rivers of living water flowing from in your heart. Call out to the mercy of God. Repent of those things. Stop quenching God's spirit by walking consistently in the flesh. Start walking in the spirit. Because Jesus has proclaimed here, you will only be satisfied when you're walking in the power of the Spirit, understanding and believing in Him. And of course, as we've read in, in these dialogues that Jesus has, um, division arises. These are hard sayings. Division arises. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Once again, the crowd is divided. Some say, you're the prophet. You're a Moses-type prophet. Others had a little bit more insight, said, well, maybe you're the Christ. But then they realized what they said, well, how can he be the Christ? He's from Galilee. <laughs> All they need to do is a little bit of family tree research, and they would have found out that he's actually from Bethlehem. But, you know, I think this is a lie of the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time. They were propagating amongst Jerusalem that he is a Galilean. 
So if they could get doubt in people's minds that Jesus wasn't actually from the line of David, then they've won half the battle. So that's happening here, I believe. See, for the third time in this chapter, we have a division among the people over him. And it's really interesting because the original word to, for division here is a schisma, where we get our word schism from. It's a schism. A schism is a, a really heavy word for a, a split over doctrine, actually. It's a schism. The church has been riddled with schisms over the years. And this is a type of thing that's going on here. There's a major division. And some wanted to arrest him, but could they? Don't be silly. His hour has not yet come. They had no show of arresting Jesus. But Jesus was on God's time. God's plan. And then we get back to our favorite uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. I don't know if they're favorite or not, but they're here. Because we have a report from the temple police to go back to them. The temple police come back. This is a fascinating dialogue. The officers that then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, verse 45, and said to them, oh, and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Notice their answer. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Oh, you can hear the heat and stinging rebuke, can't you? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a firebed of, you can see the hatred of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They wanted to kill Jesus. These temple police come back. And by the way, this is a really interesting thing. The temple police were made up of Levites. The temple police <laughs> knew a little bit about the law. And what's their defense for not bringing Jesus their defense is not, not blaming it on the crowd and, and um, those sorts of things. Their defense is this. We have never heard anyone speak like this. Never. I've got to say that one day when we're in heaven, we'll see some of these temple police. They may have come to belief. I don't know. text doesn't really tell us that, but they have this astounding uh, insight that Jesus speaks truth. What's the Pharisees' response? One of anger and contempt. If, and it's like this. Well, if you don't believe what we believe, then too bad. That's what they're saying. Well, have we ever believed? No. Well, therefore, all that crowd's are cursed. Even those that have said that they saw the signs and believed, they're cursed. They don't understand the law. We're the ones with the expert on the law. We understand religion. We understand theology. We understand doctrine. So what do you know? And then old, enters old Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, we got introduced to him in chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus had a whole lot of questions of Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. 
born from above. And Nicodemus here, interestingly enough, he's not taking a side with Jesus one way or the other. But what he is doing, he's not defending Jesus, he's not defending his teaching, but he comes to the Sanhedrin as a fellow member of the Sanhedrin. And he comes to them on common ground and he, he says, oh, what about this point of law? This point of law, we need to be fair. We need to judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. That's what Deuteronomy tells us, the Old Testament law. If you look at Deuteronomy 1.16 and Deuteronomy 17.4 and 19.18, it, it talks about giving a person a fair trial. And he just, he's calling them to account and saying, we're doing no due process here. This is a simple Jewish legal procedure. Now follow it. But what do they do? They continue with their contempt. They accuse Nicodemus of being a Galilean. And then they falsely state that no prophet comes out of Galilee. I can think of nearly three that came out of Galilee. Jonah. And a little place called Gath-Hepa, which is just by Nazareth, which is part of the province of Galilee. Elijah, the Tishbite, just east of the Sea of Galilee. At the time when Elijah came to prominence, it would be considered the region of Galilee. And potentially Nahum. Now Nahum, no one knows where Nahum came from because we can't find it on a map. It's a place called Elkosh. And they potentially think uh, some of the earlier writers thought that might have been somewhere in Galilee. But we've got two out of three. So the Pharisees make a false claim, once again, to try and substantiate their argument. You know, in respect, the Pharisees are just showing a great deal of dissatisfaction. They're dissatisfied. But you know what? It's been ringing in our ears. As Jesus stood up, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The Pharisees and Sadducees were dissatisfied. They continued to hate him. They continued to separate himself from him. In six months' time, they would potentially get their revenge if they saw him crucified. But here Jesus offers us to satisfy our deepest longings. He offers the quenching of our souls. He offers eternal life. He offers his indwelling spirit. My appeal to you is come to him because he is the only one that truly satisfies. Walk in the power of his spirit if you're a believer of Christ because that's the only way you will be truly satisfied. In marketing terms, Jesus, Jesus truly gives us a 100% satisfaction guarantee. 